Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. Thank you, Aaron. Beautifully done, as always. We are starting a new series this morning, having concluded our story from the Old Testament book of Ruth. But since we like stories so much, I thought we would simply move to the New Testament and look at some more stories, some gospel stories. These are more commonly called parables, and as such, these will be stories that are told by Jesus. Now, I've done parable series before, so we're not going to look at the ones we've already done, which means we're not going to look at the ones that are probably more famous, like the parable of the Good Samaritan or the parable of the prodigal son. We're going to look at some others that I've not preached from over the years. Now, we said that Ruth was a historical story, meaning that it really did take place. The characters really did live, and what transpired really did happen. That is not true of parables. Parables are made-up stories. They did not literally occur, but they are made-up stories designed to teach spiritual truth. They are different from allegories. Allegories have different meanings within the story. That is, allegories, all the points match something else. That is not the case in parables. And if we miss that distinction, we're going to come up with some poor interpretations of our stories. Rather, in a parable, there is usually one truth or perhaps a couple of truths that Jesus is trying to get across by telling this everyday story as an example. So we have to be careful about how we interpret parables, and we're going to see that even this morning. Now, most people like stories as part of sermons, and I probably don't do enough of them in my sermons. Because as we're listening to a sermon, stories give us a brief period of rest from the harder to follow or more difficult things like the points or the principles or the theological truths. And they are generally more easy to remember than those principles or points. But even in a sermon, I don't tell a story merely to tell a story. I don't tell a story just so you can take a break for a few minutes. I tell a story to try to tie that story in to the truth that I'm trying to get across. Now, we can all sort of assume that this is the reason why Jesus told stories. Since that's what we think about stories, we tend to think that Jesus told stories for the same reasons, because they were more memorable, because people could attach themselves to those stories more easily, and therefore they could be remembered. But that is actually not why he told stories parables. In fact, the disciples asked him on one occasion, why do you teach in parables? So Jesus gives us the answer to the question why he uses this particular genre. Look at Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 through 13. These verses will not be on the screen because these are not the verses for our text today. This is the chapter that we're going to look at. But I wanted you to see before we got to the parables why Jesus said he taught the people in parables. Matthew 13, verse 10. Then the disciples came and said to him, 
Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And then he quotes from Isaiah the prophet. So Jesus is with his disciples in a boat. If you go back to verse 1 of chapter 13, he is in a boat because the crowds are too large on the shore. So he gets in a boat with his disciples to speak to the crowd. But this particular part of the story is probably just told to the men who are in the boat. This has to go down as one of the more stranger things that Jesus ever said. He actually says he uses parables so that some people will not understand what he's talking about. You see, we tend to think of the opposite. We tend to think of stories that make things clearer. But Jesus says, no, I actually teach in parables so that some will not understand. You say, well, why would he do that? Well, you have to understand that we are at least towards the midpoint of Jesus' earthly ministry here. This is Matthew 13, and this is the first time we come across parables, which means Jesus has been doing a lot of teaching, and he has performed a lot of miracles prior to this point, and yet he's been rejected by the vast majority of people. And so he says here that he teaches in parables because there's a certain part of the crowd that is simply not going to understand spiritual truth because they didn't want to. They had had enough evidence already from all that he had said and done. But he is acknowledging here that spiritual truth is a gift from God. It is God who opens our eyes. It is God who allows our minds to understand what we see and hear. So while some people will walk away from even this sermon, having really heard nothing, being unconvinced and unchanged by the truth. Others will come and they will embrace the spiritual truth and they will walk away just a little bit transformed, perhaps not radically, of course, but week by week as they hear the word of God, they will digest the truths of God's word and they will be gradually transformed. So why would some hear nothing and others hear much? Well, sometimes it is the cause of the preacher, no doubt, Sometimes it is the cause of the listener, but Jesus here says it is God who opens the eyes and the mind to understand spiritual truth. Now, when he uses the word secret there, it means that it is something that has previously been hidden, but has now been revealed. That is, there were some things in the Old Testament uh, time period that the people did not understand. They had pictures, even as we saw in Ruth, they had foreshadowing. But now we know much greater things as we open the pages of the New Testament because the secrets of the Messiah have now been revealed. The vast majority of the parables are going to deal in one way or another with what we call the kingdom of heaven. That is going to be true of all four parables we look at this morning. Yes, I said we are going to look at four parables this morning, but don't get worried. They are all very short and all have to do with the kingdom of heaven. So that's my simple title this morning, the kingdom of heaven. So we're still in Matthew 13. We're going to start in verse 33, and then we're going to drop down to verse 44. Matthew 13, verse 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven 
that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. That's parable number one. Now drop down to verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, verse 47, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, before we jump into the four parables, we need to start by defining the kingdom of heaven. After all, if these parables are about the kingdom of heaven, telling us what it is like, then we need to begin by understanding what it is in the first place. Matthew uses this phrase over 30 times in his gospel. You will also find, not only in Matthew, but in other gospels, a similar, if not synonymous phrase, the kingdom of God. Now, to be fair, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is a bit confusing to most of us. We relate a kingdom to an earthly nation or a power that is governed by individuals who are placed in authority over the nation, and that nation has geographic boundaries, and that nation or kingdom is in charge of the people under their care. Now, we as Americans did not establish our country as a kingdom with a king. So kingdom terminology is a little bit foreign to most of us, even if some of us are fascinated with it. But part of the problem is that the Bible uses this phrase in multiple ways. That's why it's a little bit confusing. The phrase kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven can be used in the Bible in at least four different ways, all of course with reference to God. Sometimes it is used as the universal reign of God over all of his creation, not salvation necessarily, we'll get there in a moment, but the kingdom of God is in some sense everything. Because after all, God created all things. So sometimes in the Bible, the kingdom of God means all of his creation. Because he's not only the creator, but he is the sustainer of all things and everything on the earth. Secondly, sometimes the kingdom of God or heaven is used in the Old Testament to refer to the nation of Israel. Though they were never large, they were certainly not more powerful. There were larger and more powerful nations than they were, yet they were the chosen people of God. And therefore, sometimes his kingdom refers to Israel. The third way the kingdom of heaven or God is used is primarily the one we are going to be looking at this morning. And that third reign, uh, that third use is the activity or rule and reign of God in the world with his people. And so that is what Jesus meant when he began his ministry with the pronouncement that the kingdom of God has arrived. But for you to be part of this kingdom, you have to personally embrace who Jesus is and trust by faith in what he's done. Of course, that's salvation. So to be part of the kingdom in that sense, and again, that's largely the sense we're going to be looking at, means that you must be a believer, you must be a child of God. The fourth way the phrase is used is 
is to refer to the coming of Christ at the end of history to culminate his kingdom. So another reason why this topic is a bit confusing is because on the one hand, we hear Jesus saying, the kingdom of heaven has arrived. On another hand, we hear the Bible saying the kingdom of heaven is yet to come, and therefore there is a culmination of it that is yet to be fulfilled. John the Baptist began his ministry in Matthew chapter 3 with the words, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. After the baptism and wilderness experience of Jesus, he began with those same words. So again, the kingdom of God has arrived in the sense that we're going to be talking about, and yet there is a future element to it. So here's a working definition for us, at least for the majority of what we're going to talk about. The kingdom of God is the redemptive reign and rule of God. Redemptive meaning salvation. We talked about redemption plenty in the book of Ruth. So the kingdom of heaven is the redemptive reign or rule of God through Christ in the lives of person as evidenced by his activity in, through, and around them. So when we talk about the kingdom of heaven, primarily, we're going to be talking about God's redemptive rule within his children, us. Three of the four parables that we're going to look at this morning have that as their topic. The fourth is going to deal with something that has not yet transpired. So that fourth one does look at a future aspect of the kingdom of God. So hopefully, having a little bit of knowledge now about what the kingdom of heaven is, now we're going to talk about what it's like from these four parables. So we've defined the kingdom of heaven ever so briefly. But secondly, we want to talk about growing the kingdom of heaven from the first of the four parables in verse 33. Growing the kingdom of heaven. Now, this picture, of course, is from the kitchen. It is from the bakery. And it concerns leaven or yeast. The image here of leaven is usually negative in Scripture. Jesus warns us to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, meaning their influence negatively in our lives. It is most often associated with sin. And that is why to this day, Jews remove leaven from their house during the Passover celebration and only eat unleavened bread during that time because in large measure, leaven is associated with sin throughout the Bible. Now, because of this, there are some scholars who try in this parable in verse 33 to find yet another warning from Jesus. But this is surely not the case. And besides, we do need to understand that images in the Bible can be used to refer to more than one thing. So here it is used in a positive sense. The positive sense being a small thing by comparison, leaven or yeast can have a tremendous influence and transformative power on the larger whole. You cooks know, and I had to ask Aaron this this week because I didn't know this stuff, but you cooks know that a little bit of yeast can transform a much larger batch of dough and allow it to rise. Those of you who make sourdough bread, you know that you have to keep a little bit of that starter back in order to start the next batch, and on and on it goes. So three measures of flour in this story is about 50 pounds or enough to feed about 100 people. But of course, we're not interested in cooking this morning. This is not a sermon about baking, or I wouldn't be preaching it. So we're interested in what this tells us about the kingdom of heaven. It tells us that from what is small and humble beginnings, 
the kingdom will grow and have a dramatic effect on all of human society. Do you remember Jesus told his disciples that after he left, they were worried, they were confused about him leaving, and yet he said, after I leave, the Holy Spirit is going to come, and because of that, you're going to do greater works than even I've done. And he did not mean by that greater in uh, quality. I mean, Jesus had healed diseases. Jesus had raised people from the dead. What he meant was greater in quantity, because now God was going to be working Not just through the Son, but through the Spirit, God was going to be working through all of the disciples. And so from the public ministry of Jesus in Galilee, where the majority of people rejected him as the Messiah, the message of Christianity has now expanded globally. That's what this parable is about. It starts small, but it grows exponentially and impacts all of society. Now, I recognize that there are still places, there are still people around the globe who have not heard of the message of the gospel. We talk about that when we talk about missions from time to time. We talk about unreached people groups. That is those groups who have a very small, if any, percentage of the population who have heard and responded to the gospel. So I realize that that still is an issue, and our International Mission Board is trying very hard to make that no longer an issue. But the point is, the message of the Messiah is no longer confined to a specific region of the world, nor to a specific people within that specific region. It is now to be proclaimed to people of all nations, all tribes, and all tongues, and we are told that all of such will be represented, as we sung about a moment ago, when we all get to heaven. There's going to be representatives from all nations, all tribes, and all tongues. So how does this happen? How does this grow from a band of 12 disciples who were fickle in their faith at best to a message that has been spread so widely. Well, I'm calling this growing the kingdom of heaven, but I want to make clear that I'm not talking about us doing the growing. It is God who causes the growth. It is God who is transforming people. You and I do not have that power. But God has chosen to use us to proclaim the message of the kingdom so that he can use that message to transform others. So we do have a part to play. God has chosen us as his children, and he's chosen to use us in the growing of his kingdom. We didn't, need the parable. We didn't read the parable just before this, because I've preached on it before. But it's the parable of the mustard seed, and it has the same message. It says that this little mustard seed, one of the smallest seeds, can be planted and grows into a large bush or a tree that is able to house birds. Again, it's the, the, the picture of growth. We saw this when we went to Israel a few years ago. In fact, I have a picture on my computer with a hand with some mustard seeds in it. I didn't choose to show it this morning because the seeds are so small, you couldn't see it from where you're sitting. So it would just be a hand. But the image is very dramatic in that these little bitty seeds can grow into a pretty large bush, meaning that the kingdom of God can grow in this same way. We ought to be grateful that the kingdom of heaven is indeed a growing kingdom because it has grown to include Gentiles just like us. And we ought to be grateful that God has given us a part to play in that kingdom in proclaiming the message so that he can continue to transform individuals and even society as a whole. So we have defined the kingdom of heaven. 
We've talked about growing the kingdom of heaven. The next two parables, we're going to lump these together because they have the same message. They talk about valuing the kingdom of heaven. Different stories, but the same truth being proclaimed. First, we have a man who stumbles upon a treasure in a field. He doesn't seem to be searching for it. He just happens to find it. Now, you know that this was before the days of safe deposit boxes and banks. So people did hide treasures by burying it, especially when there was the potential for an invading army who would then want to not only capture the people, but take away their treasures. They would bury them. And that is why we have found manuscripts in caves and why archaeologists continue occasionally to find more because those things were buried because they were treasures so that an invading army would not take them. Now, we, of course, look at this story and we have an ethical dilemma. I mean, if you found something in a field, a field that did not belong to you but did belong to somebody else, and you stumbled upon this treasure, don't you have an ethical obligation to tell the owner of the field that there is treasure there rather than buying the field for yourself without the seller knowing that this treasure exists? Of course, you do have that ethical issue, and you should do that. But that's not the point of this story. And that's the point of parables. If we take every detail and go down tangents from every detail, we're going to miss the spiritual truth that is conveyed here. We don't know who owned the field. It's not important. We don't know if the man who found the treasure knew who owned the field. That's not important. The important point here is, and that's what we must focus on, that he was willing to sell everything because the treasure he found was so valuable. No one forces him to do this. It's not an obligation he begrudgingly endures. Rather, the story tells us he did so joyfully, selling off everything in exchange for the one treasure he found because he knew that one treasure was more valuable than anything he possessed. In the second story, we have a merchant, a merchant of pearls, who is searching. He knows the value of pearls, And he is searching for the one pearl that, for whatever reason, is more valuable than all the others. And like the first man, when he finds it, he too is willing to sell everything else in order to to obtain this pearl of great value. Both of these men recognized the value of the treasure and willingly got rid of everything else so that they could possess it. Now, let me try to put this in more modern terms. Surely you recently saw that someone in Illinois won $1.2 billion in the lottery. $1.2 billion. They have yet to come forward and claim that prize. Now, let me say in passing, I am not encouraging you to play the lottery. I'm not endorsing this in any way. I'm just bringing the story up to date. But suppose somehow you have access to that $1.2 billion ticket. Again, the details don't matter. I don't know how you have access. I don't know why you have access. I don't know why anybody would want to get rid of that ticket without claiming it. Maybe they're foolish and they decide to sell that ticket to you for $10 million. That's enough for them. And so they come to you and say, this is legitimately the winning ticket in that lottery and I will sell it to you for $10 million. What would you do? You would sell everything you own 
and get some other investors to join in with you if you had to, and you would come up with that $10 million because obviously the winning ticket of $1.2 billion is worth way more than the $10 million you would have to pay to get it. Therefore, you would get rid of everything to purchase something of much greater value. Now, again, keep in mind, I'm not endorsing that, just updating the story. So this is a parable, so every detail does not equate to something else. I say that because neither of these stories is trying to teach us that we must purchase our place in the kingdom of heaven. That is not the point at all. The point is that the kingdom of heaven is so valuable that nothing else compares. And as a result, it ought to be our greatest priority with nothing else coming in even a close second. We should joyfully let anything and everything else go so that we might passionately pursue the one thing that is most valuable. Remember in my newsletter article, which I'm sure you have memorized, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, but seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness and all these other things, meaning the basic necessities of life, will be added to you. So let's ask ourselves the question at this point, is the kingdom of heaven our greatest treasure? Again, I'm talking about the present. I'm not talking about a desire to live in heaven someday. I'm talking about the present kingdom of heaven. Is it our greatest treasure? Is it the thing we value the most? It ought to be, and if it is, it ought to be evident in our lives and we ought to be passionate about it. This is in stark contrast to the half-hearted, casual approach with which many have toward the faith. Do you know that one of the struggles that missionaries have when they come home from the field is the apathy of American Christianity? They struggle with that because they're not used to that on the field because in most places on the mission field, a place where it's probably gonna cost you to be a believer, which means those who are believers are more fully committed to it than perhaps we are. And so missionaries struggle in coming home and seeing the indifference and the apathy that is evident in North American Christianity. But this must be applied to us. We must see Christ as our greatest treasure. We must be passionate about the things of God as a result. We see also in these parables that when the treasure was discovered, decisive action was taken. Again, as I said earlier, we cannot buy our access into the kingdom of heaven, but we do have to take action. And that simply means we have to recognize that Christ is the value, the kingdom of heaven is the greatest value, and we need to be and want to be a part of it. Which is just another way of saying that we must trust Christ as our Savior and Lord, recognizing him as the greatest treasure and personally applying that to our own lives. And of course, it doesn't end there. That's just the beginning. And then we faithfully follow him the rest of our lives. So that's parables two and three, valuing the kingdom of heaven. Now, you can also do the opposite. Rather than value Christ as your greatest treasure, you can, as many of them did in the first century, you can reject him as such. And so this last parable tells us what happens if we choose to reject the kingdom of heaven. So now we're fishing, literally. This is a fishing story, which of course is appropriate at that time because several of the disciples were fishermen. And remember that 
Jesus is in a boat on the Sea of Galilee as he is teaching these, uh, the crowd and the disciples. But we're not fishing with a rod and reel like most of us are familiar with. The more common way to fish on the Sea of Galilee was with a net. And so they would throw a net and they would drag it back in. Perhaps the boat would drag it for a time and then eventually bring that net back in, hoping, of course, that it was filled with fish. Again, when we went to Israel a few years back, we went out in a boat on the Sea of Galilee and they demonstrated to us how they would cast those nets and reel them back in, though, of course, they didn't catch any fish while we were there. There are at least some 20 species of fish on the Sea of Galilee, obviously some more desirable than others. At any rate, Jesus uses this imagery to talk about a future aspect of the kingdom of heaven, the separating of the good from the bad at the culmination of the kingdom. This story is very similar to a more famous story, parable, the parable of the wheats and the tares. Here, the fish are to be sorted out when the net is brought on board. Some of those fish would be too small to keep, and so they would be thrown back. Some of those fish perhaps might be diseased in some way. They wouldn't be fit for human consumption, and they would be thrown back. Some of them might just not be the more desirable species, so they too would be thrown back. So that only the good ones in the eyes of the fishermen would be kept for market. Now, when I was a kid, I fished a great deal. I haven't done so as an adult. I don't have the patience for it anymore, but as a kid, I did. And so sometimes when you were fishing, you thought you had something good. You thought you had something good on the line, only to discover perhaps that you're snagged on something. Or you reel something in and it's trash. I mean, literally. It's something that someone's thrown into the lake and you have somehow hooked it, thinking that you had a fish. Or perhaps it's just not the kind of fish you were wanting to catch. I remember one time, my cousin and mine and I were fishing. My uncle took us fishing quite a bit. And one of us, I don't remember which, caught a large fish. But it was a carp. But we were excited. We didn't know the difference. We had caught a big fish. Only for my uncle to tell us that carp were not the best eating fish in the world. And we weren't going to keep it. We were going to throw it back. On another occasion, I do remember this one more clearly, my cousin had something big on the line. This was over at Watts Bar in Rockwood. He had something big on the line. But when it finally surfaced, it was a turtle. It wasn't a bass or a catfish as he thought it was. It was a turtle. And he was none too happy about it. I'll spare you the details of what he did to the turtle because of his anger. But suffice it to say that he didn't like catching something that he didn't want. And so it is very clear from our story that Jesus is talking about the future judgment at the end of the age. And those associated with the bad fish are cast into the fiery furnace where he says there will clearly be much suffering. Now it is not said what happens to the good fish in this story, but we already know that they then would be part of the kingdom of heaven. Now here again, a word of caution is in order because when we think of the terms good and bad, we tend to think of moral judgments. That is, we tend to think of good people versus bad people. Those people who generally do the right things versus those who generally do the wrong things based on how they live and act. But of course, we know that it's not the good people who get into heaven and the bad people who don't. We know that the distinction is what we've done with Christ. So that if you've embraced Christ, his righteousness, 
then you are part of the good. And if you've rejected that, then you are part of the bad. And by the way, those are the only two categories. And that is what matters when it comes to final judgment. Now, in case you are one of those who says we shouldn't be talking about such things on a Sunday morning, after all, Sunday ought to be a place that we gather to be encouraged and strengthened, and we ought not to be talking about things like judgment to come. God is a God of love. Let's focus on that. But I remind you that this is Jesus doing the talking. And Jesus talked more about judgment by far than anybody else in all of the New Testament. So yes, God is a God of love. But those who reject his love will face judgment. And because this will not happen now, but in the future, it is a reminder that until then, the visible church will have people from both categories. If you go back to the wheat and the tares um, parable, they, are, they, are at, they ask Jesus, should we tear up the tares? That's the weeds. And he says, no, let them grow, both grow together until that final judgment, and then they'll be separated. Here in our story, the fish are allowed to be in the Sea of Galilee together until the final judgment, and then they are separated by the fishermen. And likewise, the parable teaches us that people are to, allowed to remain together in the present some whose profession of faith is just that. It is mere words, while others are genuinely followers of Christ. This separation does not come until that day. In one of the more chilling statements that Jesus ever said, this is Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, some will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What a chilling thing to think about. That there could be those in the visible church, in what we call the body of Christ, whose profession of faith is a mere profession and it is not really possessed they do not have saving faith. Now, the good news is that you are still alive to hear this, which means you have yet another opportunity to examine your faith and see if it is genuine. Because at the close of the age or at your death, there will no longer be time to respond. At that point, judgment and destiny will have already been determined and fixed. But for now, you have that opportunity to cross over from death to life. You have an opportunity to see that Christ is the greatest of all treasures and you can be included as part of his kingdom. On the other hand, you can hold tightly to the treasures that you already have and decide that those are good enough for you and you don't want anything else. So you can reject his offer, either consciously or unconsciously. You remember the old game show, Let's Make a Deal? contestants they would already have some sort of prize and they would be given the opportunity to trade in that prize for something else something that was behind the door so they didn't know what it was but they could trade in their prize hoping for something better and sometimes they would get that sometimes it would be vastly superior to whatever they had but sometimes they could get a clunker right sometimes they would trade in what they already have for something that was worthless and they would make a bad deal 
Well, I want you to understand that you don't have to worry about that with Christ. No one has ever made the exchange and taken Jesus as the greatest treasure, giving up their supposed treasures and gotten less than they already had. Since Christ is the greatest treasure, you are sure to receive far more than you might have to give up. Let me pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word and for the reminder that you are far more valuable than anything we could ever have. That to have Jesus is far more valuable than to have anything else in this life. I would say that the vast majority of us would say we believe that. And yet here in the West, we are so good about clinging to treasures of our own making, prioritizing them above you. So I pray that you would search our hearts through your Holy Spirit. Help us to examine whether we do believe and live as if you are the greatest treasure. Even when that means that we have to forsake less valuable things. May we be willing to give all because we recognize that your kingdom is the greatest treasure we could ever have. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing and you respond.